Awesome. Good morning. So who currently feels like you lost an hour of sleep? <laughs> I, read, I read an article last night that was on the Oregonian saying with all of the attempts to get rid of daylight savings time, they're like, this might be the last time we ever have to change time. I am praying that that is true because I, I think this thing's miserable. Although, let, let me give you another little aside. I'm part of a, a ministry that does uh, prayer all around the globe. And so we have these prayer times that, uh, that happen multiple times during the day. So there's one at 7 a.m. in the UK. There's one at 6.30 a.m. on the East Coast. There's one at 6.30 a.m. on the West Coast. And there's one at 9 p.m. in the UK. And so what a lot of Americans don't always realize is like the rest of the world changes time in two weeks. We decided to move it, so we move first. So you've got these time zones going with people from all over the world. We move this week, so it's all out by an hour. And then they move next week, but then there's some places that don't move at all. And so trying to coordinate how we're going to pray and who's gathering at what time was like a four-hour attempt. Uh, it was probably longer than that the other day, trying to make it all work. So anyway, welcome to the, the new time zone. Hopefully you're functioning. My goal is to be a little short today so that we can uh, get out and have some, have some rest. So um, again, reminder, you, sh you should be able to tell me this when I ask. So, you know, we're in this series called Sent. What's the purpose? The purpose is looking at the early church to recover their vision for what it meant to be the church. So as a church uh, in the Western world, we're so focused on what happens inside of the building. We get so focused on gathering together for worship and prayer. We have lost sight of the calling to be a sent people out in the world. So we're looking at Acts to try and recover the identity that we've been given as sent people. Um, two more things before we jump into the passage. The next one is um, Acts 1.8 is the commission that is given to the early church, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this whole book is set around what it looks like to carry that vision. So as the church, it is our job to take the gospel from where we are and help spread it out further and further to the ends of the earth. Um, so the whole book of Acts is set up around that mission statement. We talked about this last week. So the first seven chapters look at the gospel as it's spreading in Jerusalem. Chapters eight and nine start looking at the gospel as it goes into Judea and Samaria. And then from there, from 10 onwards, it's basically the gospel as it spreads to the rest of the world. So we're starting chapter eight this week. So we're making this transition in the book where, where the, the disciples and the apostles and the church has been focused on Jerusalem. And it's now starting to spread out into the rest of the world. And so this is where the church really starts to launch. And this is where we need to help recover what it looks like to be the church. So let me read Acts chapter 8, um, and, and then we'll go back through and, and look at it in some more detail. So starts on a great sentence. What happened last week? Stephen died. Stephen was martyred for his faith. Um, so chapter 8 picks up from here. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So here we're starting to spread out. Godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. 
Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered went to their rooms and gathered and worshipped and prayed together in their house. <laughs> Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down into a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he'd amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing that you've said may happen to me. After that, they further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south on the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. 
As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled around, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, which was the kind of capital, Roman capital of the area. Crazy, lots going on. I mean, it would be awesome with a series like this just to do every tiny little story, but then we'll be here for like four years, so, so we're not going to do that. Um, what I want to do as we go back through this story, there are four kind of main characters that crop up, and so we're just going to look at each of these four characters. It's a simple way to kind of break down the story, but within these four characters, there's kind of two sets of comparisons. So you've got Saul and you've got Philip, and then you've got Simon and you've got this Ethiopian eunuch. And we have to remember, like, this is a piece of literature that, that Luke was compiling to help the church understand what was going on, what had happened. So he is deliberate in what he's choosing and what he's not. So we've got this thing telling us that they're going all the way through the regions of Judea and Samaria and they're preaching the gospel. But yeah, they only give us two stories right here. So there's a lot more going on. Luke is specifically pulling these stories together to help highlight and contrast and let us explain what's going on in the story. So we're going to look at the four characters. Um, and, and I want you to ask yourself the question as we're going through, where do I see myself in each of these characters? Okay, so where do you see yourself in each of these characters? So the first character we're going to look at is Saul, and I just want to touch on him briefly because he gets his whole chapter next week, so he doesn't need more than that. And then he gets the rest of the book, so he's going to come up a lot, so, so, so enough. And, and at this point in the story, at the end of the day, what's happening, Luke is just starting to introduce us to who's going to be the main character. So the, the, the chapter opens, Saul approved of their killing them. We've just seen earlier on in chapter 6 and 7 that they're stoning Stephen and Saul is there holding everyone's coats, gleefully enjoying the moment as they're martyring this person for their faith. And here's, here's what I want to draw our attention to about Saul. Saul has just been introduced to us. Michelle Jones did a phenomenal job two weeks ago of, of planting this thought in our mind, like Paul was the most unlikely candidate to be a, a, an advocate for the gospel. And so you get this unlikely advocate that it is going to encounter God and become this vehicle that God uses to reach the world. So God uses the most unlikely people. Um, but at this point in the story, Saul is a zealous Jew. He's of the people of God. He thinks he's doing the right thing. He knows the word inside out. He's studied it. He's taught it. He's scrutinized the words. He sat in the synagogue in his little huddle and they've debated for hours the nuances of scripture and yet he's missed the point. Jesus comes on the scene and he misses Jesus. The spirit is pouring out and he's not receiving the spirit because his eyes are focused on the wrong thing. And so when we're looking at Saul, we have to ask the question, to what degree am I like this man who pours over the text, who stands firmly on the word of God, but misses Jesus, misses his heart, misses his character, misses the outpouring of the spirit in the process? And what does Paul go on to do? It says he destroys the church. He goes from house to house and a rampage of destruction. 
And there are people in the church who, like Paul, have good intent. They think their eyes are fixed on Jesus. They think they know what the truth is. And they go from house to house destroying people with their words because they preach a truth that is hurtful. They lay a heavy burden on people and say, you've come to faith, now clean up all of these things in your life and we'll see you next week. And they don't lift a finger to help. So Saul is introduced as this character who is zealous for his faith, who knows the word, who is pursuing it with passion, but is missing it and is actually in the process of pursuing the word of God, standing against the movement of God as he's trying to spread in the world. Uh, and that's just the intro to Paul. So I'm just going to leave it there. All that's doing is setting up the story for what's coming next. Saul and his, mi uh, his missed, misplaced zeal that's going to be transformed and used in the expansion of the kingdom. So the first character is Saul, who gets it wrong. There's a contrast here as we're introduced to Philip. So who is Philip? In Acts chapter 6, you have that moment that there's the debate between the Greek-speaking widows and the Hellenist, the Hellenistic and the Hebraic widows, and they appoint this group of people, these seven men with Greek names that are going to minister uh, to these people in need. And it starts, these are the names of the people. It says Stephen and Philip. And so what happened? It then went on to talk about Stephen's story, and now he's jumping into Philip's story. So this is one of these godly men that was appointed as a deacon in the church to help take care of these people and manage the funds and the benevolence. This is a great guy. Um, so his story has been picked up, um, and, and we're going to see the contrast between him and Saul as we look at this. So I've put this verse up here. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So at the end of the day, who's Philip in this story? Philip's the good guy. Philip's the one that when we read his story, we pretend that this is us, right? Because we're not Saul, right? We're not Simon. We're, like, we're Philip. We're the ones that get it right. We're the ones that are active in our faith. Um, let's just look at what we should look like. Okay, we'll put it that way. This is what our faith should look like as we live in the world. So if you have your passage open and you're looking at it, like the, it starts, the, this transition starts with this verse, you know, the church is scattered. So you've got this moment where, where Stephen is killed for his faith. He preaches this killer message and all of a sudden this attack comes against the church. And so the church is forced out of Jerusalem because in Jerusalem they want to kill every Christian. So that's like a group of like military people arrive in this church and are going to kill us all. And they're like, we're taking down every person in Portland. Where are you going to go? Because when the smoke's here, we go out of town. When the riots are here, we go out of town. So if someone's coming to kill us for, for our faith, let's not pretend we're going to stick around, right? <laughs> we're going to run. To Idaho, <laughs> down to California, because I mean, that's, it's human nature. It's self-preservation as part of the process, but the beautiful part of the story is the Holy Spirit comes on them and gives people the stick in power. But at this point in the story, the church scatters, and all that's left in Jerusalem are the apostles. So the most fierce, obnoxious, in-your-face people, they're all going to die as a result of it, and um, they stick around. The church scatters, and I just these verses, the church scatters, what does it say? And they preached the gospel everywhere they went. Now, let me just correct something here, because they didn't preach like we understand preaching. The, the, word, the phrase preach the gospel is one word that is like the word for evangelize. Like, they share the good, 
wherever they go. So these people are scattered, and everywhere they're going, they're sharing the good news. And, and here's kind of the thing in my head with this. They were sharing the good news in Jerusalem, and they were active in sharing their faith. So when they were scattered, they continued doing what they already do. But if we were to look at the Western church, we're not sharing our faith, so if we scattered, we're not going to share it there either, right? So we need to start here of learning how we share the good news, not stand up and preach message to people, but how we share the truth of the gospel with the people around about us. So if there is, or is, is ever a time when we're persecuted for our faith, that as we're scattered or in this globalized world where our jobs change or our kids move away and we move to another place, that we're going to carry the good news with us and not just take our inward focus and transplant it somewhere else. So, so this is the context. These people are spreading and preaching the gospel wherever they went. Verse 5, Philip goes to Samaria. Now, remember Samaria in the story? The Samaritans and the Jews had this racial tension kind of around uh, their theological beliefs, where you should worship, how you should worship, and Samaritans were a little bit more mixed race than the the Jerusalem Jews were, and so there was this antagonism between them. We've got this amazing story in John chapter 4 where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. He takes the long cut through Samaria, meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and has this amazingly profound conversation about how a day is coming when everyone's going to worship in spirit and truth. So God is stirring in Philip, and where does he send him? to the place that they have racial prejudice against, right into the middle of Samaria, to start spreading the gospel. And all the people are persecuted in Jerusalem, so where do they go? They go hide with the other people that are persecuted and kind of ignored by the Roman rulers because their faith's a bit watered down. So it's not a good picture of the church right here. Um, But in this instance, Philip's sent to Samaria and he starts preaching. Verse 6, you're watching this guy dependent on God. He's sharing the good news. He's praying for people and they're being healed. He's praying for people and demons are like shrieking and being cast out of their bodies. And the whole place is looking going, this is amazing. And they're attentive to the message that he's got. Um, Again, the the church in the West, we're a very powerless church. We're not seeing a lot of these things happen. And I would advocate it's because we become a prayerless church. Um, So we're not learning to persevere and persist and capitalize on the power of God to take things forward. Um, Verse 12, as he's preaching, has this beautiful little statement that kind of summarizes what he talks about. It says, he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. And I'm going to hit this every time we get to it because uh, I think we're getting there, but there's lots of people out there that don't. So if they ever stumble upon this, I want them to be smacked with it, right? Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus. They're not out there proclaiming don't have abortions. They're not out there proclaiming your sexuality is wrong. They're not out there proclaiming you've got the wrong political opinion. That's not the stuff that they're sharing as they go. It's the good news of the kingdom, not the bad news of the kingdom, (laughs) that you're going to have to shed these things and different things will change as you go. They're sharing the good news of what we're offered through faith in Jesus, and they're exalting his his name. And we've seen this, and you'll continue to see it every time they preach. They're preaching that Jesus came, that he died, that he was resurrected, that he ascended, and he sent his spirit. That's the message that we're sent with, that he came to rescue and redeem. The other stuff can come later. 
when they're in the church and they're walking with Jesus and God is working on their heart, we can talk about the rest. But if we want to be out there in the world, our job is to ask the question, where is God stirring in this person? Where are they hungry for something that smacks of the truth of Jesus? And then how can I help turn that desire and that hunger onto the one that can provide the answer? Um, so proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in the name of Jesus. Um, that's all happening in the Simon part of the story, but the time it goes on to the Philip part of the story, you've got this amazing moment where an angel appears to Philip and says, hey, I've got an idea, head south on the desert road towards Gaza, right? Hands up in here if God said to you right now, get on the road and drive toward Reading, you'd just be like, sure. You know, we're like, uh, can I get a little more direction? Like, where do you want me to start? What do you want me to do? What do I need to take? Um, some of us, you, it's like first aid kit, camping gear, we're like loading the car up, ready to go. This guy just goes. God speaks and he moves. He doesn't need all of the answers. He doesn't need all of the instructions. He's just ready to go. Is that the posture that we're walking in? because it's the posture that we need to cultivate. Um, Sandy and, uh, and Laurie, as we're sharing in the pre-service prayer, you know, that moment of what does it look like to just sit in silence and listen and not fill our time with busyness and, and reading and journaling and praying and walking and serving and just to take time to stop and to listen because if we're not listening, we're never gonna hear his voice and we're never gonna be able to go. So sometimes we need to stop and cultivate that ability to hear and then are we ready to obey when he sends us? Um, and then this verse is up here as he gets to 35. You get this part in the story where it, it's awesome. So he's just head that direction and just start walking. Remember, they don't jump in a car. <laughs> so they just, he's just walking away. And he just so happens to arrive next to this caravan overhears the Ethiopian eunuch as he's reading the scrolls aloud, he just so happens to walk up to the chariot at the exact time that he's reading aloud a passage that talks about the suffering servant. So again, you're getting in your car and you're driving to Reading because God told you to, and you just so happen to pull in at the gas station as someone's sitting on the side of the road with the Old Testament open, reading something out loud, and it just so happens to be a passage you understand, and you just so happen to be able to tell Jesus to them. You're like, you know, there's so much coincidence or God instance happening in this passage, but it all is the precursor to all is, are we attentive and ready to do what he's going to do? And then it says, starting with that very passage, he told them the good news about Jesus. Now, I do rail against the Western church a little bit. I'm included in this, right? But in the Western church, if someone walked up to someone and they were reading a random verse in the Old Testament, how many people would know what it was and know how to get from there to the good news of Jesus? Let me, let me change it a little bit. How many people in the Western church, if they saw someone reading the New Testament and heard and got to a point, would know how to take the message that was there and actually begin to share the message of Jesus? Uh, and so we, we need to know the scriptures. These are people in a culture where they'd grown up learning and studying and reflecting on scripture. 
Um, and we're open to what it taught. We're open to hear God speaking. And now that they've got the revelation of the Spirit, they've not gone to seminary. They've not gone to evangelism class. They've got knowledge of Scripture and a dependency on the Spirit that transforms them. Uh, and then they're able. So again, are we attentive? Are we studying? Are we in the Word? Are we learning? Are we attentive? And are we attentive to the people around about us? Um, and then as the story ends, you know, there's these two miraculous interventions that happen, and then it just finishes, you know, Philip traveled around. He's done with the instance. He's kind of whipped away, and he travels around uh, preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel everywhere he goes. So, so in this man, Philip, in contrast to Saul, he's focused on the word. He's zealous for his faith, and he's destroying the church. You've got this man, Philip, who also knows the word, but who is open to God, who has received the Spirit, who's attentive to his revelation. And the question becomes, where are you on the spectrum? There's a spectrum here, and how are you doing? And where do you want to be? Um, and how are we gonna get there as we partner with the Lord and that transformation? So that's person number two. Person number three in the story is the character Simon. And we're gonna see that as he puts these two stories together, again, he's contrasting Simon with the Ethiopian eunuch. And so you've got this moment, this crazy part of the story, like Simon is this like sorcery dude. We don't know what he's doing. It's definitely like the language of occult stuff, but he's performing some kinds of wonders that people are looking at him and marveling. All of a sudden, uh, like Philip's there, he's sharing the gospel, he's doing miracles so that the fancy works that he's doing are better than the works that Simon's doing. So people are like, we wanna follow that guy now. That sounds like the world, right? That person does it bigger and better. We're going this way now. Uh, do you have, we call it glory hunting. Do you have glory hunters? You support one team when they're winning and then when they're losing, you support the other team. Yeah, it's, it's, that's kind of what's going on here. But anyway, they're, they're intrigued and they're attentive. And all of a sudden, these people start putting their faith in Jesus. They're being baptized. Simon has this moment where he accepts the message, where he has a baptism, but then you begin to see that, hang on, maybe this wasn't quite what we thought it was. Because what happens to Simon? Hey, can, can I buy this power, this ability to uh, lay hands on and have the Holy Spirit fall? So let me, let me give you a couple of things in here that I think are really interesting. Uh, Luke makes it clear that people referred to Simon as the great power of God. That was the label they had for him. While the great power of God is falling on the church, you get this guy masquerading as the great power of God. Uh, and so you get this man known with this reputation who all of a sudden is being confronted with the true power of God. And he's discerning enough to notice that there's something powerful going on there and that he wants in. Um, and verse 13, we're told that he believed and was baptized. Um, but the rest of the events of the story are gonna insinuate that, that it isn't a, a real conversion. Um, We'll see. Could, could be. Um, but you've got this guy who is pursuing and responding to Jesus, but then you see him continuing to hold on to the things that he's bringing from outside the church. So you have this moment in verse 18, he wants to buy the ability. Why? Why does he want to buy the ability? Is it a desire for power? Is it a desire for status? He's been known as the great power of God. He's got this following, and all of a sudden they're switching to follow this Jesus and these apostles that are appearing. 
I have to wonder if he's looking going, when I had this power over here, all the people followed me. If I can have the power they have, then they're all gonna follow me over here. And so you have those moments. It's like, I'm a CEO of a big Fortune 500 company and I give my life to Jesus and I walk into the church. Now I need to be the CEO of the church and you need to put me on committees and have me in leadership. It's like, no, you're spiritually immature. You're not ready for that. We have this thing where it's like, when it's in this part of the world and I get to do it, then as soon as I jump over here, like I should get to do it too. Um, in Simon, you'll see yourself in Simon if you're one of those people who likes power, especially in the church. You know, we like to cling to it. He's in this situation where he's losing his power and he's doing whatever he can to buy it. And we have that in the church. You know, like this is a transition time. So lots of people have lost roles, have lost leadership, have lost responsibility. We're walking forward and people are like, what does it look like in this next era of the church for me to step into leadership or power? And, and, and that's a good question to ask, but we got to examine ourselves. Like, am I wanting this for myself and for power? Or do I really believe that God is calling me to be an instrument to help lead and shape where the church is going? And uh, the discernment in there, because <laughs> it's not like all the time I'm really wanting the best for the church and all the time I'm power hungry. It's kind of like this morning I'm power hungry and tomorrow I'm, and 10 minutes later it's, it's for good motive and then all of a sudden it switches back to being about self. Um, so when you're looking at Simon, that, that issue in us is, is present in his character. I love, <laughs> I love as Peter and John appear, and then they, they address Simon's request. And this, this verse, may your money perish with you. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but interesting word choice. Uh, where are you used to hearing the word perish? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Um, the word perish when it's used in scripture is usually talking about like separation from Jesus. So you get this moment where Simon, where, where, where uh, Peter and John are looking at Simon and outwardly, he's done all the Christian stuff. He's confessed his faith. He's been baptized as part of the church. And they can see inside. May your money perish with you. Because your heart is not right before God. You may be fooling everyone else, but you're not fooling us. And what does he say? You are full of bitterness and captive to sin. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should make this part of my routine when I come over for dinner. <laughs> look inside and you're bitter and sinful yeah that's, I'm, I'm gonna try and be a little more gracious than that stuff but you know again you can look at this character and go I'm not power hungry like Simon I'm not full of bitterness and I'm not captive to sin the last one you can't say because <laughs> we're all dealing with something um but in many ways we all wrestle with bitterness I want to throw up just four things here about how we identify bitterness um because this is language that not everyone wants to own, not everyone wants to admit that it's in us. Um, but you know you're wrestling with bitterness if, as the result of anger or hurt or frustration or loss, you do these things. Number one, you replace stories. So that means as you're driving down the road or as you're working on the yard, you're reliving 
something that happened, and quite often you end up having a different kind of conversation with the person in your head than you're actually willing to have in person. If I could see them again today, I would say this thing. Um, we don't just do it in, in our head, but we replay those stories to other people when we get together. It's like, I remember they did this to me. Um, that's evidence of bitterness. You're walking in bitterness if you're replaying painful stories uh, in your head over and over again. Number two, critical talk. Um, if you're someone that's always speaking negatively, it is evidence of bitterness in your heart. Um, you know it's bitterness too when you're in a room full of people and someone says something positive about the thing that you don't like and everything in you wants to not agree with them or not even listen or you're inwardly angry that they, how dare they say something nice about that person? How dare they say something nice about that party? Um, you know you're dealing with bitterness when, when you're dealing with negativity and critical talk inside. Um, the third one, physical tension. Um, we have physical responses to bitterness. And so again, someone is talking about someone that you're bitter toward. As they're talking, your chest gets tight, your muscles get tense, and, and you feel yourself, you're gritting your teeth. You're frowning, you're clenching your fists because you're still frustrated and you're clinging on to it. And actually, a lot of us experience illness as a result, back pain, headaches, migraines. And sometimes people deal with ongoing debilitating illness because they're holding on to bitterness. Um, the last one is relational evidence. So there is relational evidence in your life that you're walking in bitterness. And what does that look like? It looks like uh, surrounding yourself with other bitter people and bonding over negativity. So when we get together, we can do the critical negative thing, but we actually have a hard time having a positive, constructive dialogue. Um, you see it in um, replication in your family. As you watch other family members getting bitter, you look at your kids, my kids are pretty bitter, then you've got to ask, I wonder, it doesn't mean they got it from you, but you've got to ask, I wonder if I have taught them this level of bitterness. Um, and the last one in there is relational breaches. Because when we're bitter, especially against people, we, uh, we, we cut them off. And so if you're looking at your life and there's a string of cut-off people that you were close to that you're now no longer in relationship with, not because they moved away and you still communicate re sort of on and off, but people that you have stonewalled and cut off, then you're dealing with bitterness. And if those things or any of those describe you, then you're, you have a bit of Simon in you, um, who is someone that will put up the front that all is good, you will walk in bitterness, and you'll try to buy the power and, and the forgiveness. Uh, he's trying to buy the supernatural power. We try and buy things from Jesus. If I serve enough, that then you'll love me enough. If I give enough, then I'm valuable enough. If I have a high enough position, then I'm someone of worth. And we have other ways that we try and buy the things of God. But what's, what's the message when you look inside and you see the root of bitterness? What does he say to Simon? Repent. Ask God to make your heart right. And then there's some work that we have to do to rectify those situations. And normally it begins with an honest conversation with herself, followed by an honest conversation with God, usually followed by an honest conversation with the person that we're having the imaginary conversation with in her head. Fourth character, the Ethiopian eunuch. And again, we're comparing Simon, who has outwardly the appearance of Christianity and inwardly a wrong heart, 
and, and walking on the pathway toward destruction. You've got this eunuch. Um, he's on his way to Jerusalem to worship. He's a high uh, official within the Ethiopian court uh, working for the Candake. I guess when they write it with C's, everyone thinks her name is Candace. But, but I guess lots of the Bibles are starting to change it to K's so that we know it's a title kind of like Pharaoh. It's the Candake, the queen of, of Ethiopia. But, but he's going to Jerusalem to worship. So he's already pursuing God. He's already uh, seeking him and doing the Jewish things. He's diligently searching scripture. He's driving down the road on his own, reading through scrolls. And the scrolls back then were expensive. So he's invested money to get hold of a scroll so that he can search it and read it. Um, he's teachable. So this moment where, where Philip approaches him and says, do you understand what this passage is saying? What's his response? Well, how can I without someone teaching me? Can you jump in? This is like the president driving down in his limo. You're, well, let's say the vice president. So Kamala Harris is driving along in her limo. She's reading scripture. She's like, you're on your way to Reading. You've pulled off at the gas station. <laughs> Kamala Harris is there in our limo, and you, you hear her reading scripture. You listen to her. You're like, wow, it, like, do you understand what it says? She's like, no, I don't have a clue. And she's like, how, how can I? Just hop in. Hop in and just come with me uh, and, and drive with me in the limo and, and explain this all to me. So this hunger to understand is teachable. And then all of a sudden, Philip explains to him what's going on, and what's his response? Obedience. Well, if this is true, that he's ready to receive it, what's to stop me being baptized? Baptize me right now. Fill me with the Spirit. I'm ready. And so they jump, they baptize, and, and all of a sudden, Peter's whipped away. And the Ethiopian's like, what happened? <laughs> so he's responsive. So you get this comparison between Simon and the eunuch and their hearts, their teachability, their responsiveness. Um, so two sets of contrast. Saul, and, and, and let's do it as a continuum. You've got Saul on one side, uh, and, and you've got Philip on the other. And then you've got Simon on one side, and you've got the eunuch on the other. And you've got to look at that spectrum. Where am I on the spectrum? And what does God need to do in me to prepare me to be more Christ-like to reach the world? Last slide up here, um, back to how we started and, and what this is all about, recovering the vision of being sent people. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This is the calling. Are we cultivating the willingness to preach the gospel wherever we go, or are we playing house? Right? Are we gathered in here having the holy huddle, reading scripture together, worshiping like crazy, giving, and then failing to actually take this message to the people out there? Um, so we've got to read through Acts 8 and, and, and take, I would say take some time this week, take some time during the last worship song to, to draw out that spectrum, put Saul on one side and Philip on the other, put Simon on one side and the eunuch on the other, and draw, where would you put yourself on the spectrum? How teachable or open are you? Or how much are you performing? How much are you stuck on a religiosity and failing to be the advocate for the gospel that Jesus wants you to be? Um, and all of it centers in receiving the Spirit, that ongoing daily filling that empowers us to do this. And, and this is the, the kind of last note that's the encouragement. 
Remember, these are ordinary people, unschooled, ordinary people. They knew some scripture. They'd grown up in a religious system. The Spirit fell on them. Persecution struck. And with just those resources, a little bit of Bible knowledge, and the power of the Spirit, they were able to be used to expand the church to the rest of the world. So if God can use them, then he can use us. Let me pray. God, you are good. You are good. You are good. You are holy. You are righteous. You are the creator. You made everything. We were made for you. Um, you put us on this earth with a purpose. You sent Jesus. You sent your spirit. You called us to you to be yours. And you called us because you looked to us just like uh, with the four characters that we've looked at. You looked at these people. You saw the raw material of their life, and you knew how the Holy Spirit could move in them to use them to be active agents of sharing your gospel. Or Christianity without evangelism is, is a distortion of what it was intended to be. So God, what we need is more of your spirit. Would you fall on our church um, in pre-service prayer as we were praying earlier? Um, and we were asking God to, to bring revival in us individually. As that was happening, I, my eyes were closing. I was just imagining Jesus walking around with a set of bellows, blowing on the fire of our hearts uh, to fan it into flames. So God, right now, would you bellow our hearts? Would you stir up that fire? Would you cause it to get larger? Uh, a burning passion for your name, a burning passion for who you've called us to be, fan into flame the gifts that you've given us. Break our hearts for the world. God, break our hearts for sex trafficking. Break our hearts for addiction. Break our hearts for homelessness. Break our hearts for, for, for identity confusion. Break our hearts for the lonely. Break our hearts for those who are super successful but are lost without you. Would you break our hearts for our neighbors? And then help us to be responsive. Would you speak? Go to the end of the street. Take the road south. And God, would you help us to have the boldness to go? In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.